if you have a Bible with you, to Matthew chapter 22. As we continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew in this amazing exchange of our Lord Jesus Christ as he's standing in the temple in the last week of his life before he is crucified and rises from the dead. Come this morning to our Lord telling a remarkable parable. And though he's speaking immediately to the religious leaders who are hypocrites, who have denied him, to the crowd there that will, in a few days, some of them will cry, crucify. These things have been recorded in the scriptures for us. And so even though we're reading of an historical occasion, historical words that are true and accurate, these are living words. This is the word of our Lord Jesus Christ for us here this morning. So let me begin in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we're understanding, even with a brief reading of this passage, that it's very important how we respond when you speak. So we pray now as you are speaking, as your word is read, and now as your word is preached, we pray that you would, in your mercy, grant us ears to hear what your spirit is saying through the scriptures. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, here we are in Chichester, New Hampshire in 2022, and we don't think too much about kingdoms. We 
sometimes maybe wish in our current political climate that we had a really good king just to settle all the nonsense. But we know from history that there aren't, in fact, many good kings. And so we are here longing for a great king, a good king. And God has a king, and his name is Jesus Christ, his son. But our hearts are, and our minds are to be taken with the kingdom. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, that is what we should be concerned with, what we should be consumed with, the kingdom of God. I assume you know this, but the kingdom of God is the dominant theme of the Bible. It's really what it's about from beginning to end. You could say the theme of the Bible is different things. You could speak of the promised plan of God as one of my uh, favorite theologians likes to think of the p- purpose of the Bible as the promised plan of God. And that's true, the promises, but the promises themselves ultimately are about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is, is a reality that every man, woman, boy, and girl must reckon with. You have to. It's not something that you can choose among other kingdoms. You don't need to turn there, but just for a moment, I want to allude to Daniel or reference Daniel chapter 2. At the beginning of Daniel, in his ministry, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream in which there was a vision of a statue with, with, with layers of various, a statue made of various material, materials. And the statue is revealed to Daniel as speaking of a succession of various world-dominating kingdoms, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, but ultimately there's a final kingdom. And that kingdom is like a stone that will shatter all the others, all the other kingdoms. That stone, which is the kingdom of God under God's Son, Jesus Christ, is, according to Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, 44, a kingdom which will never be destroyed and a kingdom that will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these other kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. The kingdom of God is an eternal reality that every one of us must face. And our relation to the king God's Son, Jesus Christ, is of utmost importance. As we come to Matthew 22, we're in the middle of a scene where Jesus, God's Son incarnate, the long-promised King, the Messiah, is in the process of being rejected, rejected by the nation of Israel. And it's significant because the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had up until this point been entrusted among all the nations on the earth with the privilege of stewarding the kingdom of God. Think about it. Only Israel in the entire globe, think of all the nations around the world at that time, only the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel rather, possessed the revelation of God, possessed the scriptures, initially written down by Moses and then afterward by the prophets following Moses, only Israel contained or held the scriptures containing instructions about the kingdom of God, invitation to the kingdom of God. 
how men and women could know God and participate and be saved from judgment and participate in the blessings of the kingdom. God's plan all along was that men and women from every nation would be part of his kingdom, but Israel was chosen by God to be privileged as stewards of the kingdom promises, and they're rejecting now their king. So Jesus has just issued judgment in chapter 21, verse 43. He says to the leaders there, the religious leaders, but also by extension to the remainder of the nation, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. We saw last Sunday that that other people is not, it's not the Russians, it's not the Chinese, it's not any of the other nations we think, it's not the United States, it's not the Americans, it's the church, comprised of men and women from every nation, predominantly Gentiles, but Jew and Gentile, the church now is the steward of the kingdom of God, the representation of the kingdom of God on earth, and the steward of the promises, and commissioned by God to be as Israel was of old, priests, evangelists, sharing to men and women around the earth the king's message about the kingdom, and everyone's need to get ready for the kingdom by trusting in the Son. Israel will lose her privilege of being the stewards of the kingdom promises. She'll lose that privilege not forever, for it's clear in the Old Testament that actually her rejecting her Messiah was foreseen by God and actually ordained. Isaiah 53, it's ordained that they would sovereignly ordained that they would reject their Messiah, and that through their rejection and crucifixion of Christ, that atonement would be made for sins, and the gospel would extend. So in the last days, a remnant of Israel will be saved, the nation will be restored and renewed, and with the church will be one people of God. But for now, upon the judgment of Christ, Israel has lost that privilege of being stewards of the kingdom promises, and it's tragic. Her rejection of her Messiah was sovereignly ordained, but her rejection was willful, and it is tragic. Jesus here in chapter 22 shows that it's worse than tragic. It's shameful and wicked. Verses 1 through 14 warn us this morning about the gospel call. And the necessity of responding to God's call, whether we are Jew or Gentile. And so to vindicate God's judgment upon Israel and to issue a warning to all who hear the gospel called the good news about the kingdom, Jesus tells a parable to illustrate the wickedness and peril of refusing God's invitation. That's what this parable is about. It's about the kingdom of God. Jesus, verse 2, says the kingdom of heaven. Heaven there, this is, Matthew is writing to predominantly Jews who were hesitant to speak the name of God. So heaven would often be used in place of God. So you're maybe familiar with the phrase, 
you know, in what in heaven's name? Well, that someone there is just trying to not swear and blaspheme by saying what in God's name. It, it doesn't work because heaven is synonymous with God. God reigns on high from heaven. And so Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and he's warning all of us of the wickedness and the peril of refusing God's invitation into his kingdom. The parable that Jesus tells can be divided into two parts, right? So the first scene, there is a king who invites and sent out his, his servants, his slaves, to invite those who had already been invited. They reject and are judged. The second half of the parable, then the king sends out slaves, verse 10, into the streets and gathers anyone they find. And the, so the call goes out to not just the original group, but it goes beyond them to everyone. So what you see here is a pattern of God's gracious call, Notice the dominance of that word, call, 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 call. An invitation. You think of the call as an invitation. So it's it's this pattern. God gives a call. God gives an invitation. That invitation, that call is rejected. And then there is God's response. So to really simplify it, God's call, the sinner's response, God's response So we have two different settings. In the first part, Jesus is telling a parable to illustrate Israel's response to the gospel call of God. The second half of the parable is more individualistic, right? We're left not with a people or a nation. We're left with a scene of one man and his response to the gospel. So with that, God's call, Israel or the sinner's response... And then God's response. And that pattern is repeated twice. So first, let's look at the first, the first scene, if you will, or the first half of the parable. And let's first look at the king's gospel call. I use gospel because to be invited into the kingdom of God is good news. That's what gospel means. It means good news. And the, invita- the scene here is one of joy. It's, it's a wedding feast. It's, a, it's not a scene of uh, boredom or, or of um, sitting around uh, or, or at, a, at the DMV just waiting for your number to be called, whatever the case may be. This is not the scene. This is not waiting at the doctor's office. This is a party. This is a wedding feast. I'm thinking of the joy that filled this room um, at my daughter Ruthie's wedding, which took place earlier this summer in the reception. And it was, a, it was a little loud for some of our liking, but it was joyous. It was, it was not um, a funeral. It was a joyous occasion. And that's the occasion here. The king, certainly representing God the Father, is inviting, is, is giving a wedding feast for his son. In this case, is Christ. And it's a, it's a wonderful feast. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a lavish dinner, verse 4. His, he's, his oxen and fattened livestock are, are butchered and all ready to go. Just about every time I come here from our house, only a few miles from here, uh, but you can't get there from here, so you have to go around Plaza Hill. It's one way or the other, so it takes me about 12 to 15 minutes no matter how I drive. 
But so I choose to go pretty much over Cross Country Road, which turns into Robinson Road and um, or Hutchinson, sorry. And I like that because along the way there's there's a farm and there's cattle out there and um, there's some little guys that are that are growing up and it's just fun to see them. But they're getting kind of fat and chubby. And I have to say, I'm looking at them as kind of cute, but I'm also starting to look at them and thinking, wow, he tastes pretty good. Um, there's, there's some stakes there in the field. Well, the, the stakes are no longer in the field. The king has already butchered. I mean, everything is ready. Everything is ready. It's a joyous occasion. And so the king, his gospel call is to a wedding feast. It's the call of the kingdom. I just want you to notice that it's the king's initiative. It's God who's taking the initiative. It's not the people who have asked, King, can can we come to your wedding feast? It's the king who, out of the goodness of his heart, has initiated this. He is the actor. Notice in verse 3, he sent out his slaves. He, verse 4, again sent out. It is he, verse 4, who has prepared and made everything ready. God is the great evangelist. Have you ever thought of God the Father that way? God the Father is the original and the greatest evangelist there ever will be. He is the one who, out of the initiative of his own heart, determines to invite men and women sinners to his kingdom. It is he who sends his prophets, his preachers, to share the good news and to call men and women to the kingdom. It is he who sends his son, his own son, to make provision for the kingdom. So the king's gospel call is lavish. It is at his initiative. It is his sincere desire. I mean, there's nothing here as, as, as God is you know, sending this as kind of just going through the motions. Okay, I'll, I'll send them a gospel invitation, but I know they won't respond. So, you know, it's just all kind of just, just go through the motions. No, he's earnest. He's earnest and sincere about inviting men and women into the kingdom to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. Next, look with me then at Israel's response. And Jesus does not outright say that this is Israel, but what is the clue is that these are those who are invited, who are all had been invited. Do you see that verse 3? So the king, the father, sends out his slaves to call those who had been invited, past tense. Israel was privileged among all the nations of the earth to have been invited by God into the blessings of his kingdom. You see this most clearly at Mount Sinai when God, after bringing his people out of bondage in Egypt, meets with them and sets before them blessings and curses of the kingdom. And what does he call for? Is it, is it, is it rigorous? Is it, is it unreasonable? No. If you really boil it down, God promises, I will bless you beyond what you can imagine, only you worship no other God than me. You worship me as the one true God in the way that I call you to and you reflect my character. Boil it down, you love me and you love one another. And I'll pour out on you the blessings of the kingdom. 
And we see that God was not balking because at various times in Israel's history, though rare, with only a little bit of a response of the people in obedience to the word, God immediately pours out his blessings. He, he provides for them land. He provides for them abundance. He casts out their enemies. He guards them. He protects them. He acts on their behalf. That's the blessing of the kingdom. Israel was privileged to be invited to the kingdom. But God was not content just to invite them one time or twice. God sent his prophets who again and again and again and again, his slaves, his servants, these men of God, under command of God, went and declared to the people repentance so that they might enjoy the kingdom. And the prophets were by and large rejected. We see this rejection in beginning in verse 3. Look with me at the description of Israel's response. First, they were unwilling. They were unwilling to come. They just were unwilling. Didn't want to. No thanks. So, God in his long-suffering and kindness sent out other slaves. More prophets. How did Israel respond? Verse 5, they paid no no attention, paid no attention, and went their way. They were indifferent to the king's command. Indifferent. Should wake us up a little bit this morning. I know it's summer. But if our heart is not sensitized to the graciousness of God's offer into the kingdom, we are in serious danger because we are more like unbelieving Israel condemned than we are like those who belong to the kingdom. To be indifferent as, as New Englanders, we like to take our time we are not necessarily very emotional. We, we like to be, you know, work things out. We like to have a schedule and so forth. But this is gospel call. It does not call for indifference. Israel was unwilling. Israel was indifferent. They were busy. Do you see that? Verse 5. They paid no attention, went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. Yeah, they had things to do. Doesn't the king understand? I mean, to invite me to a wedding feast right now is just very unreasonable. I have things to do. I have a business to run. I have a farm. Never mind that it's the king who created you, gave you your breath, gave you everything you had, gave you that farm, gave you that business. You're busy with it. And I don't want to lose this this morning. Uh, This maybe is better to wait till the end, the application. But is this not perhaps the number one response of even professing evangelicals, believers, these days to the call of the kingdom. I'm busy. I've got a lot to do. 
I, I, it is an aside, but as we come to this fall, as we come to things like Sunday school and so forth, I, I want to tell you, and I understand some of you drive a great distance, but, but enjoy the kingdom. You're a steward of the kingdom. Don't just go to church Sunday morning. Cults do that. Be, if you're a believer, a steward of the kingdom and participate in the building of the local expression of the kingdom, which is the church, which I tell you right now will not happen merely by your attendance on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock to around 1130. We're stewards of the kingdom. They were busy, had a lot going on, and so they could not respond to the king's invitation. They were unwilling. They were indifferent. Worse, they responded with defiant violence. Much of Israel just had no time for the prophets. Others were busy, but there were some who, verse 6, seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. To be a, mar- to be a prophet in the Old Testament was predominantly to ultimately be a martyr. To be a prophet in the Old Testament sent by God to preach the gospel invitation to the people of Israel was virtually a death sentence. You, all you did was you went to God's people calling them from the death of their sin into the blessings of the kingdom, but the people by and large considered you to be what King Ahab said to Elijah. We've learned this in our evening service When King Ahab saw Elijah in 1 Kings 18, he said, Ahab said to Elijah, the prophet of God, quote, is this you, you troubler of Israel, end quote. The prophets were just evangelists, ambassadors of the king, inviting the people to the wedding feast, as it were, to the blessings of the kingdom, but they were considered troublemakers, and they were slaughtered by their own people. The prophets weren't most often killed by foreign nations of other gods. It was by their own people, the people of Israel, the inheritors of the kingdom, the stewards of the kingdom. And so in this first half of the parable, we've looked at God's gospel call, the king's gospel call, the people of Israel's response And then into the pattern, now we see in this first scene, the king's response to Israel's response. Verse 7, the king was enraged. The king was enraged. After nearly a thousand years of patience, that's a long time, from speaking of the ministry of Moses, the offer of the blessings of the kingdom until the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, less than a thousand years, but close to that. Centuries and centuries of sending prophet after prophet to proclaim the invitation to the kingdom. After all that long suffering, God became enraged. Most Christians today don't believe that God gets enraged. They've been lied to. 
They've been told that God never gets angry. Never mind enraged. But Jesus is clearly telling a parable here, not about some pagan king. He's telling a parable to illustrate God's interactions and dealings with the nation of Israel. And he became enraged. Enraged. God does become enraged. His rage is a holy rage. It's never out of control. He never flies off the handle. It's a long time in coming. Oh, but when it comes, it's fearful, beyond telling. His rage is a reality. It's the appropriate response to the indignity and offense of treating his gospel invitation like dirt. His rage is an expression of his holiness and his justice. The king was enraged. And he, verse 7, sent his armies, destroyed those murderers, and set their city on fire. Jesus is both pointing backwards at Israel's history and pointing forwards to what we know would happen about roughly around 40 years from the time he's speaking. Looking back, God sent the Assyrians who absolutely demolished the northern 10 tribes of Israel, decimated Samaria, hauled them off, and then ultimately in 586-87, God sent the Babylonians who overthrew and tore down the walls of Jerusalem and burned the city and decimated it. That was in their past at this point, but Jesus is also prophetically looking forward to that time when the Roman Empire finally would become tired of the Jewish revolt, which tended to happen nearly every generation. And in 70 AD, we know from the historian Josephus, who lived during that time, and we have the record of his writings, that Jerusalem was utterly decimated by the Romans. Over a million of the inhabitants were slaughtered, filling the narrow lanes of the streets, tossed over the side like rubbish. The walls were torn down and obliterated. The temple was gone So that to this day, you cannot find any remnants of that city that was there when Jesus is speaking, except for a few bare foundation stones. And the Romans did all that without excavators, without dynamite, without any of it. How did they do it? They burned it. And the high heat of the temperature of the fire makes these massive stones brittle. And so they are actually broken up into dust and and rock that you walk on. God became enraged. And we've seen that rage and that anger, that just anger at the nation of Israel, and it ought to give us pause for thought. He will not always keep his anger, and in the last days, the scriptures are clear and the New Testament reiterates it that God will save a remnant and renew his people, Israel. But his judgment upon Israel is frightening. 
The king's call is gracious. Israel's response was wicked. The king's response, wrath. We come now to the second half of the parable, and we shift from God's dealings with Israel in particular to to the gospel call going out to all, to all people, all nations. And you'll notice appropriately at the end of the second half of the parable, we're left not with the picture of a people or of a, of a nation, but of an individual. And that is because upon Israel's rejection of her Messiah, upon God's judgment being poured out on Israel, the gospel did not go to one nation. As I said, it didn't go to Spain, it didn't go to England, didn't go to one of the nations in Africa. The gospel call went out to all peoples. God says in verse 9, the king says, go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there invite to the wedding feast. The king having extended the invitation to Israel, their rejection, now the invitation goes to any and all It's a gospel call to the nations, not one nation, but to all nations, the men and women of all nations. And the extent of the call is to any and all who will hear. And this is underscored by verse 10, saying that those who were sent, the slaves went into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. They didn't go out preaching the gospel and say, you know, okay, well, here's a respectable group of people. We'll tell them about the kingdom, but the rascals, they shouldn't hear about this. No. They were commanded by the king to go to everyone. And this is so important for us to note right here that when it comes to sharing the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, of his salvation of sinners, we share that message with anyone who will hear. We don't cast our pearls before swine. If there's someone who who doesn't, right up front we know, has no interest, despises, they don't even want to give us a hearing, we're not forced to scream it in their ear. But the general principle is we do not look around for a respectable group of people who look like good prospects for the kingdom. The ministry of Jesus is our example. He preached the kingdom to priests and to rabbis and to teachers. And he preached the gospel to prostitutes and tax collectors, druggies, drug dealers. The gospel goes to any and all. So notice this about this gospel call, and we are in this period when the gospel call is going out to anyone and everyone, and we ought to be, again, reminded that this has not always been the way, that there was a time when the gospel was largely contained to Israel, the promises of God about the kingdom, but now, under the plan and the wisdom of God, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom is to be preached to any and all. There was a, a great error of mostly of former days and, and in the 1800s in particular in England, a movement you might call hyper-Calvinism in which seriously there were men who taught that um, only the elect needed to hear the gospel and, only the, and so you would not share the gospel, you didn't need to send missionaries and there, that is still alive in little pockets where people, preachers, take the doctrine of the salvation, the sovereignty of God and totally twist it. 
And, and I know of some churches where there is no regular call to the congregation to believe in Jesus Christ and to repent. Why? Because that pastor is, is assuming that if you're elect, you'll be called and that's it, and he doesn't have to preach the gospel. That's heresy. Heresy. It, it, you cannot condemn hyper-Calvinism with, with, with any the strongest terms. It, it, is, it is the most offensive idea that you would take God's word, which from beginning to end evidences his gracious extending to any and all who will hear the possibility of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It is, it is an abuse to withhold from men and women that gracious call. That obligation is for every preacher, every pastor, every evangelist, but for you as well. That no matter how wretched a person may seem, no matter how far from the kingdom, that we tell them, as someone told us, about the gracious invitation of the king into the kingdom of God. So the call is to the nations, and the extent of the call is to both evil and good. Well, we transition now to Jesus tells the parable from the nature of the invitation now to the nature of the response. And the response focuses on not the nations in general, but on one, one man. The slaves went out, verse 10, they invited men and women of all kinds, and, and there was a large response. The wedding hall, verse 10, was filled with dinner, dinner guests. But, verse 11, when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. I want to title this second part of this second half of the parable, The Arrogant Sinner's Response to the Gospel Call. So if you haven't figured it out yet, there's two parts of the parable. I have three points in each one of them. And if you missed the points, you can come to me after. For those of you who are just like, I've got to have the point. It's okay. I understand. I'm not like that, but, but I understand. <laughs> Jesus goes from the nature in the second half of the parable to the gospel call of the nations to the arrogant sinner's response. Why do I say arrogant? Because the response, the nature of this man's response is revealed by his presumption to attend the wedding feast without wedding clothes. Now this is very fresh in my mind. Um, as there was a wedding, my daughter was, as I said earlier, married earlier this summer on July 9th, one day after uh, my wedding anniversary, and, and part of all the preparation for that wedding was, was especially the, the ladies and, of course, the bride uh, having, you know, a special dress and the, the, the bread wedding party all had to have, you know, you know how it is. Everybody has to have, you know, matching dresses and great thought is put to that. And, and there was even a little bit of thought put into the dad, me, and, and we've got to make him look somewhat respectable somehow because uh, he's going to be walking the bride down this aisle. And, and, and you know, there's some preparation to that. There's, there's quite some cost to that. But it's appropriate. By our dress, we were indicating this is a very special occasion. 
I mean, this is, this is really a once-in-a-lifetime occasion for this couple, likely. Until death do them part. This is a joyous occasion. And so, yes, we, we go to expense. Yes, we, we dress out of the ordinary. It, if I had worn to the wedding what I was wearing yesterday as I was working at home while the girls are all away and you know, I'm just going at it, I, I didn't care what I looked like at all. You might think I lived on the streets if you saw me yesterday the way I was dressed. I just was working. It was, it was filthy because it was filthy work what I was doing. And if I went to the wedding with that, people would think, how offensive. He doesn't even care about his own daughter's wedding. He would show up like that. In other words, there is an offense when we presume to not take care. How can I honor those at this joyous occasion by how I put myself together? So this is not cruelty on behalf of the king. The king is not unreasonable. The king is not lacking grace. Oh, you should just welcome everybody just as they are. No, it's not what's going on here. This is not a man who somehow missed the memo. Oh, oh, I, I didn't know I had to have wedding clothes. No. And, and there's no indication that this is a man who doesn't have a budget for wedding clothes. Because the king has presumably provided wedding clothes for all the guests. This is key. The king has not only provided a lavish banquet, but this is his king's wedding, this is his son's wedding feast, and, and he knows that, remember, the kind of people who are there. They are both evil and good, and they're off the streets. These are likely, a lot of them, people who do not have the own, their own means to purchase or acquire the kind of clothing that one wears to such an event. I mean, the closest thing that maybe we could get to this is if, is if you know, uh, if, if there was a, a royal banquet, we won't say royal wedding in England because that gets kind of messy and fraught with all kinds of difficulties, but, but if Her Majesty, who, who, who we respect, we, we're, you know, she's, she's held her own for quite a few decades there over uh, across the pond, and, and if you were to receive a request from Her Majesty out of the blue, you had no idea that you were even on her radar, and, and it was some great royal uh, occasion, and she really wanted you to be there. I don't know about you, but I'd be in trouble. Because not only do I have the means, first of all, I don't have anything of my own to wear to such an event with Her Majesty Queen of England, uh, but I don't know anybody who has clothes that you would wear to such an event. I don't have the means to pay for the kind of clothes that one would wear to such an event, and I don't even live in an area where there's any kind of clothing store you could go to where you would have clothing appropriate for such an event. I'd be in a heap of trouble. I'd say, Your Majesty, I would love to come, but can someone among your house please provide for me a set of clothes because I don't have anything that I can wear to something like that? In the, sto- in the parable here, it's presuming that the, that the king has provided these wedding clothes for those who have been invited And so the man to be sitting there at the wedding feast without the wedding clothes is the height of presumption and is of great offense. The only possible reason for the king's displeasure is that this man had the audacity to think 
that his own clothing would do. He shunned the king's clothing and insisted that his own would be sufficient for an event such as this. His refusal of the wedding clothes revealed that he had no intention of humbly acknowledging the honor of being invited to the wedding feast. His refusal reveals a lack of humility. It reveals his pride and arrogance in presuming that he had the resources to clothe himself for this this little feast. The greatest stumbling block to the kingdom of God is pride. We all want to participate, want to contribute something to our being made worthy. But the king provides the wedding clothes and there is no other way. For it is the wedding feast for his son. It's a kind of clothing that you cannot buy or purchase here. You and I do not have the resources or means to provide us with clothing fit for the kingdom, for such a wonderful, joyous wedding feast. So we've seen the nature of the call to the nations. We've seen the response of one arrogant sinner. And now thirdly, we come to the king's response to the arrogant sinner's presumption. What's the king's response? Anger. His anger is shown after the man was speechless, verse 12. The man has no excuse. He doesn't say, I I didn't understand that I had to have some. He, He doesn't have anything. He just, he is suddenly exposed in his presumption. And the king's response is anger. Bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's with the binding of hands and feet? Once he's tossed out, he'll never have an opportunity to respond again. There will be no second chance. There will be no second opportunity. There will be no invitation. Once he is bound hand and foot into outer darkness, not only can he not see where he's going, and he's in a prison that he cannot escape, but even if he could, his hands and his feet are tied. In other words, he is banished to a place that Jesus will make clear called hell. a serious thing to reject the gospel call and it's a serious thing to presume to pretend to accept the gospel call but really presume to continue on in a standing with God and being part of his people with clothing of your own provision. The Pharisees and the religious leaders were perfect examples of this. They claimed 
to believe in the promises of God and his provision, but they really believed and trusted it in their own righteousness to stand before God. The clothing that God offers to sinners is the righteousness of his own son imputed, credited to you. No one, no sinner of any kind has the righteousness, the garb with which to clothe himself or herself and enter into the kingdom and enjoy the wedding feast. And so God, through his own son, through the obedience of Christ, through his death and through his atoning for sins, God provides for sinners, along with the invitation to come, God provides the clothing, the righteousness that is required, the righteousness without which no one will see the Lord. And it's a very shameful and ultimately damning decision to outwardly act as though you are part of the people when inwardly you know you have not humbled yourself and you have not confessed that you have nothing with which to clothe yourself, that you must humble yourself and receive from God the gracious gift of his own son's righteousness. Hell is the only just destiny for those who snub the gracious call and provision of God in Jesus Christ. We don't fear this enough We don't fear this. We just don't. It's right. What does God call for? What makes us worthy? Verse 8 says, those who were invited were not worthy. What, What makes, in the whole parable, whether it's the first half or the second half, what makes men and women worthy? They humbly received the invitation with joy and received from the king everything they needed to attend the wedding feast. That's it. What makes you worthy is that you humbly believe. Respond to the invitation with sincerity and receive the gift of the clothing of God's provision of the righteousness of Christ. Jesus, in summary, in verse 14, sums up the whole parable with this. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. The gospel call goes out, not only to Israel, but now to men and women all around the world. There are untold millions, perhaps even billions, who have heard something of Jesus Christ and of God's gospel to trust in him for forgiveness of sins and to enter into the blessings of the kingdom. But most reject. 
Many are called. Many receive what is often referred to by theologians as the general call. Many are pleaded with. Many are asked. Many are invited. Many are urgently called to come into the kingdom and to trust in Jesus Christ, but few are chosen. They are chosen, if you want to think of it, on two counts. First, they all have this in common, humility. It's not a virtue that they possess naturally, which leads us to the second observation. It is the work of God. For we all recognize, if we're honest, that though we hear the gospel call, that though we are those who are generously invited to come, that unless God gives us a heart, we'll never respond. This absolutely decimates all self-righteousness, all ideas that if I'm just good enough, somehow I'll get into heaven. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. By grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I want to close with referencing two passages. I just want you to listen. Don't don't turn there. Just listen to these two passages. The first from the Gospel of John. There in John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus, the king's son, says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. How do you know that you are among the chosen? You just re- you leave that to God, and you respond to the gospel invitation. It is sincere. It is true. It is from the heart of God. He is urging each one of you here this morning No matter how many times you've heard it before, he's here urging and extending his gospel call again. That you would be saved from sin and from outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that you trust in his son and believe in his provision of his righteousness. And if you come to Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, what does Jesus say? I will certainly not cast you out. Just come. And for those who come, we find that this is true. And with this, I close Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. This morning, those who have we've responded to the gospel call, by God's grace, we have trusted in Jesus Christ. We know and embrace the reality. We contribute nothing to our salvation We have no righteousness or good standing to contribute. We are naked before God in our sin and our shame until he wraps us in the robes of the righteousness of his son. We say with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Blessed be the God and Father who not only calls us, but chooses us and clothes us, making us fit and ready for the wedding feast and participation in the joyous kingdom of his Son. 
If you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, and often when I say that in a congregation, I, you, I've been preaching here for 12 years, not in this location, but to you. Some of you have heard me for many years, and I know there's not many of us here this morning. It doesn't matter how many times you've heard it, and I do not presume for a minute, a second, that there's no one in this room here this morning that maybe knows only to them and God that they have not yet truly humbled themselves and trusted in Jesus Christ. Dear friend, what are you waiting for? You don't have to wait long enough to get yourself together. You've seen God doesn't want that. He's actually offended by that idea. He doesn't want you to wait until you get yourself together and have a certain measure of repentance. He's inviting you this morning and all he wants you to do, all that makes you worthy is you say, yes, Lord, I come and I trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you. That's it. It. Receive his invitation. It's sincere. It's generous. And he'll provide everything. You let him take care of that. Oh, yeah, you'll have to repent. And yes, you'll have to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. But he's going to provide everything necessary. It's not you and God and your salvation. It's you and God and his salvation in Jesus Christ. Trust in him today trust in him today. And for those of us who have, by God's grace, trusted in him, we are now stewards of the kingdom of God. And I mean this with all kindness and sincerity, and I'm examining myself. It's time for us to act like it. To express our gratitude and wonder that we would be invited to such a joyous gift as the kingdom of God. Let's pray. What a God you are, O God, the great evangelist. Help us this morning to respond, each one of us, to your gospel call. We pray this for your son's honor. Amen.